0: A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 Bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I'd no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Darrell Lee milk chocolate Bilby this Easter. The good folks at Darrell Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate Bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Darrell Lee Bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve. And help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame, which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the 5 of my life challenge chooses a favorite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Doug Taylor is the CEO of the Smith family, Australia's largest children's education charity. A lovely man with a fascinating, moving and inspiring backstory. It was a real pleasure hearing him tell his stories and recount his lessons. So, Doug, welcome to Five My Life. Thank you, Nigel. Now, you are here because of the wonderful Five My Life community. I ask every guest to nominate someone That they want to hear. But there's a second stream where listeners write in quite regularly and say, "Oi, you should interview, I don't know, Tom Cruise or Oprah Winfrey or whoever (laughs) else. And someone called Stu wrote in and said, you should interview Doug Taylor. So just before we get into the actual choices themselves, would you mind talking to that relationship?
1: Yes, yeah, I would love to. So uh, Stu's a good friend who I've got to know. Uh, as a mammal, I say a little with a little bit of embarrassment, a middle-aged male in Lycra. Mammal. Uh, mammal. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, we hit that stage of life. And so I've uh, gone from other forms of sport to running. Now I'm on a bike because it's all I can manage. But in the course of that, you meet great people riding in groups. So Stu lives not far from me. And we ride in the southern highlands of New South Wales, spend many hours out together riding. And you get to know people pretty well, actually. He's a, he's a terrific person.
0: Okay. Right, well, well, so let's hope we don't disappoint him. <laughs> That's right, no pressure. <laughs> and no, no pressure. pressure at all. <laughs> no pressure. Um, Now, we start with the film on yes. Five My Life Always, uh, yeah. and you have chosen the film adaptation of Harper Lee's 1960
1: classic
0: To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: That's right. Perhaps a little predictable given my line of work and the like, but, um, yeah, really kind of little interesting little backstory. So I remember sitting in the mid-'80s in a... One afternoon, Pennon Hills High School, I think it was year nine English. I was not in one of the top English classes. It was a lower English class, uh, not particularly great at school. And we had one of the really good teachers from one of the top classes, and we were studying to kill a mockingbird, and she played she played the film. And I still remember it being played in the classroom uh, and just being struck by a couple of things. One you know, the Atticus Sphinx character. I mean, you know, dashing, persuasive uh, lawyer, all those things. Um, kind of, you know, probably a bit seduced by the you know, heroic male individual, all that sort of thing at that age and a bit of white saviorism, and the like. But still, um, it stirred something in me in terms of somebody trying to make a difference, stand up for something. And uh, it had a, quite a profound impact on me. And from that kind of time forward, it was clear to me that Whatever I do, I try to be making a difference in big and small ways. And that's kind of been my working and volunteering life for a long time. And, you know, one of the ways that has kind of become really important to do that for me has been really thinking about the fact that in the human lottery of life, we are born into the families that we're born into. Through, you know, just by that those circumstances, and sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's that's less great. And you know, a lot of my work is about trying to ensure that. We do as much as we can as a society give young people every opportunity they can because there's so much innate potential in all young people. One of the great joys of my role at Smith Family is I meet a lot of the young people that we support, and there's just extraordinary talent. Um, and with the right opportunities, they do incredible things. Uh, and we kind of have this myth, I think, in society that you know life is life is like a race. We all start at the at the at the line, the race line, uh, together. And the ones that succeed are the ones that work the hardest, have the uh, innate natural gifts. In reality, a lot of kids start 50 metres behind, they've got backpacks that are weighing them down. Unless we provide extra support to them, they they just don't have a chance. And so that's a lot of the work that I've done over the course of my working life and at the Smith family. And look, honestly, Nigel, I don't have a problem getting out of bed in the morning and it's just a wonderful gift to be able to do this work. It's a real privilege. Um, and I enjoy it enormously.
0: For some of the listeners who aren't familiar with the Smith family, yeah. can you give the elevator a pitch description of, yeah. of the wonderful work that, that they and you do?
1: Let me tell you the founding story very, very quickly. It's a, it's a crazy story. So uh, five businessmen 101 years ago uh, in western New South Wales, having done some business out, out in the country, having a pub uh, in Parramatta, Uh, uh, one night just before Christmas. They're talking about what they're going to do at Christmas with their families. Uh, The conversation turns to what is it like for uh, a disadvantaged child at Christmas? Long story short, they pulled together some gifts, went to a local orphanage, gave those gifts. The matron asked, who should I thank? one of them said thank mr smith because they wanted to be anonymous in their giving uh, so it wasn't brilliant no, it, was it, it no wasn't smith. actually mr no, smith right. it was about being anonymous it was kind of yeah. it's kind of a quaint notion of, if you think about the social media age being yeah. anonymous in doing something but that was a there was a sense of duty and obligation i think at that at that time and so they all called themselves the smiths those five people hence the smith family and so we had our centenary last year and i'm a bit of a history nerd and we got into the archives and and, and our early years And for the first few years when they were recording minutes, they'd all call themselves Mr. Smith. It was mostly men at the time. So it's actually impossible to find out who the founders are because of that sense of uh, anonymity in, uh, in giving. From that, um, an organisation that's done a lot of welfare relief over time. About 30 years ago, after talking to the families that we'd supported, uh, asking them, how can we best support you? Uh, they talked about um, really the need to support their child's education. So from then we've been increasingly focused on addressing educational inequality. Uh, we support through one of our flagship programs, Learning for Life, about 60,000 uh, students across the country, all who experience disadvantage by providing financial support. Uh, working with their parents and carers, principally to support them to uh, best support their child's education. All the data shows that the biggest predictor of education success is actually parental engagement in a child's education. Schools, teachers are great. They're, I wouldn't want to undermine their value. They're incredibly important. But the more parents are engaged, uh, the better the outcomes, and running a range of programs in um, about 700 disadvantaged schools. So that's the, the shape, if you like, of this uh, initiative. And, and
0: how do you qualify yeah. for for uh, – I've got four kids at the left home now, but just pretend, yeah. you know, 20 years ago I I want some
1: help. Yeah. Um, do you go, sure, or do you go prove that you need it? Or how does that mechanism work? Yeah, yeah, great question. So effectively we rely on our school partners, all disadvantaged schools, to identify – the students and families who could benefit most from those programs. So it's a scope of a sense of what their need is uh, that has to be validated, but also the degree to which they're willing to work with us and partner together because we need people invested in the work that we're doing together. So it's those two things that's...
0: And, and then, uh, and this isn't supposed to be a curly question. This no, is this, I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated by <laughs> this, is, and then how do you measure mm-hmm. outcomes, not outputs? Yep. No, no, I, so I've, yep. I, in my time i've done a bit of work with a variety of charities and i can and, hear that and, and some <laughs> people are quite keen to talk about the outputs which yeah. are great yep. and then you you get to the outcomes and i don't know literacy hasn't actually been improved yep. so you go well forget the leaflets mate yep. <laughs> it, it's not working anyway, yep. so how, how do you guys right.
1: do oh thanks for asking that question i'm so glad you have it's a bit of a passion of mine as well we can nerd out later on <laughs> measuring outcomes it's a whole that's a whole thing and look you, you're dead right it's really important that we take that seriously and you know we're raising you know, lots of money, uh, people investing in our work. So we want to be treating that money like an investment in us and our work. So so we measure it rigorously by looking at um, the degree to which our students who are supporting are attending school Uh, their achievement, how where they're going with uh, achievement data, their completion of school, and their post-school engagement. What are they doing after school? Are they going to further education uh, or employment? So, in fact, I was just at a meeting this morning we were looking at that data. And I've got to say at the moment, it's really tough. Um, Cost of living pressures, COVID, attendance is possibly the worst it's ever been. Um, And that attendance, school attendance, was going south pre-COVID. So there's something bigger going on in society uh, and in the minds of you know, parents and students as it's how they think about education. So there's some big heavy lifting to, for us as a nation uh, in terms of how we might turn that around and we're in the middle of conversations with government and the like about the future of education and you know, school attendance is one of the big things we've got to be focusing in, in on and, and addressing.
0: And, and what is your workforce? Is it is it largely uh,
1: volunteer, part time, full time? H- h- how do you engage with yep. the people you're helping? So uh, about a thousand staff, about five thousand volunteers. Uh, We started by volunteers. Volunteers are incredibly important for us. So I just recently volunteered for the Smith family, (laughs) changed hats and (laughs) jumped into one of our volunteer programs. I mean, it's a fascinating little program. Basically, uh, mentoring a young person in one of our partner schools, a young guy, uh, talking about uh, education and careers and the like, Uh, 12 weeks, all done by chat, one hour a week. Now for a dinosaur like me, (laughs) who's great at doing thumbs up and okays, chatting with a young person like that, um, it's how they engage with their peers and, and others, so great way for them not confronting uh, but a real challenge for me but terrific in terms of uh, the opportunities and we had some great conversations um, getting to know each other and then talking about you know he wants to become a painter and thinking about also becoming a chef and so I'm researching how to do that whilst I'm talking to him and you know so those kind of mentoring programs now going online is a whole new way to look at different types of volunteering because one of the things that really concerns me is that uh, volunteering in Australia is at record lows so uh, uh, I think from 19, uh, 2019 to 22, 2 million people stopped volunteering in Australia. Mm. So a big drop in our participation rate. And that just means that organisations like the Smith family, we've just got to find new ways of helping people explore opportunities to, to volunteer in their community. I mean, I've volunteered all my working life as well and it's one of the great joys of life. Um, so I see the great value of it and we want more people to have that, uh, have that opportunity and make a difference at the same time.
0: Tell us uh, the most heartwarming story of a family or child that you've uh, helped.
1: There are so many, honestly. Um, The one that comes to mind is a young man I met early this year, uh, James. James is um, a really impressive young guy in his 30s now. So one of the benefits of the Smith family is supporting a lot of people. Uh, We do that for the course of their education experience, but they become adults And you have these conversations reflecting back on their experience as a child. It's incredibly reflective about the challenges they experienced. So anyway, James um, sadly lost his father when he was a young boy. Um, He died, I think it was in a fishing accident. That led to his mother really having some big mental health challenges, also grappling with substance abuse. And for a time as a young boy, he was effectively her primary carer. So you can imagine what he's dealing with in going through that, the impact on his education. We got to know uh, James uh, with some other organisations and help him providing that financial support. Our workers were connecting and engaging with James and he had opportunities to do careers related programs at school as well. Uh, Discovered in him a passion for sport. Somehow through our networks got him an opportunity to go and shadow the physiotherapist at the Australian Institute of Sport, you know, for work experience. And that Turn the lights on for him. And so set off a passion, become a physio. We supported him through university. It's very expensive, obviously, university and housing and books and the like. Um, So James is now in his 30s. He's a physiotherapist working his own practice. He's just had his first child. And he told me recently about an experience he had uh, when he was uh, at the local hospital as physio doing a shift. And he said, I had one of those sliding door moments where a young man came in uh, to accident emergency and he said, that could have been my life. Clearly, a young guy has had all sorts of challenges. And it was just one of those contrasts you see that and with the right support at the right time by the right person, you know, it just says to me that um, people who face challenges can, can go on and do great things and be great contributors in society. It's about getting those things to people when they need them.
0: It just must be amazingly motivating to see that. And and then they uh, hopefully become your advocates out in society. Oh, absolutely. So so James presumably will speak very highly of the Smith family.
1: Yeah. No, they're great ambassadors. You know, we obviously – we have a lot of money to raise for our work and honestly – all all I need to do is bring along a student and they tell their story and they're very generous in telling their stories and really reflective of the challenges. And just one other quick anecdote, Shane Hyde, CEO of Simply Energy Now, gone on and done great things. He recently reflected at a forum about the experience of shame and stigma as a young boy growing up experiencing poverty and how that meant that he felt uncomfortable about asking for help. He didn't want to appear to be different uh, to his peers. I think we can all relate to that. Uh, And that impacted his education because he couldn't afford the books that he needed for his classes at the time, but he didn't want to put his hand up and say that. So, you know, and we obviously were able to support him and he's, again, gone on and done terrific things. And, uh, you know, it's not about successing the incredible things, but for me it's about just celebrating progress, the small steps that people make, given the enormous baggage and challenges that they carry with them from an early early life.
0: I I love hearing these stories and it's a... A wonderful uh, sort of quirk that for the format, you started in down this track because of a film that you saw yes yes I, I mean so it's called The Five of <laughs> My Life because yes. it's supposed to be five things that lead to yeah, and you yeah. go wow well that yeah. was well, straight out the gate your film <laughs> changed your life it we're going to move to your second choice yes. and got a bone to pick with oh, you I'm, you, I'm uh, keen to hear uh, it well, well when you came in you said blimey you bought it and did you read it of course I uh, did I'm, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to drop it on the table now <laughs> <laughs> it's the biggest hardback <laughs> business book uh, and business books are a genre yes. that um, how yeah. can I say this in Winnie the Pooh language that yes. Normally, I wouldn't wipe my backside (laughs) with, (laughs) but in your honor, I read The Practice of Adaptive Leadership by, it sounds like a, Bunch of New York accountants, Haifa uh, <laughs> Grasho and Linsky. Yes, yes, so yes. Uh, I'm keen to hear, um, maybe explain what okay. the book is first for our listeners. I doubt many of them have read this. No, um, no,
1: sure, and and I'm keen to hear your view on it too, as to what you thought. So, so this this book came at a really important time to me. Or the kind of the thinking, adaptive leadership came to me. So I did a leadership program in 2004 called Sydney Leadership. This was the framework that was being used uh, at the time. And look, I'm not going to go into the detail (laughs) and dissect the framework. I think what has stuck with me from this kind of way of thinking is that uh, leadership is an exercise and not a role. In other words, we can all lead. If we want to think about how we can influence others to create positive and lasting change. Now that was a big shift in my thinking at the time. Maybe it was a slow learner or something, because I'd equated leadership with roles, as I think a lot of people still do. And also equated leadership with the uh, people who have the X factor or people who seem to have all the answers, you know, that kind of mythology of leaders. And the more you work with so-called leaders, the more you realize it's total BS. Yeah. We're all making it up as we go. And at that time when I was doing that program and kind of thinking about leadership and reading uh, some of that material, I started working with a guy called Steve Lawrence. Steve is a he's the late Steve Lawrence, wonderful guy, a real mentor for me. Steve uh, started up an organization called Work Ventures in the late 70s in short, a group of Christian hippies. Uh, So kind of living the alternative lifestyle, applying the kind of Christian principles of the kind of early church, you know, pulling their resources together in order to make a difference. And they were living together in La Perouse. Um, So they started doing some incredible things in La Perouse and over time built this organization that started to do more in economic development, a whole range of things. And I joined that team in the early 2000s and was working with Steve. And he just gave me opportunities to have a go. He was a serial entrepreneur and a really difficult person to work with. Uh, broke all the molds of what we think leaders were, but so purpose focused, so you know laser like focused on what he was trying to achieve. And he he let me have a go at doing things. So you know, with him we set, we were setting up technology centres and public housing estates because we were worried about people being left behind in terms of technology access. We started a PC recycling venture that still runs today, taking decommissioned corporate uh, PCs, um, uh, uh, refurbishing them and and distributing to low-income families. It's now connected up 80,000 people across the country. And actually, the Smith family is working with that organisation now to help our young people get connected as well. And so, you know, it just had a profound impact on me in terms of really just... I guess empowering me to think about well, yeah, I can do this, I can have a go as at as well at being a leader and trying to influence others in the kind of broader sense of to what that what that really means
0: so there's something uh in the space that you're in that fascinates me it's analogous in a way to the creative space where <clears throat> It's one thing to be creative. It's another thing to be able to commercialize it. It's one thing to have good intentions, which I think most of us do. It's another thing that the, the angels of this world like yourself who actually have good intentions and want to do something about it. But then to have an organization that is functional and sustainable yeah. not in an environmental sense i mean as in is going to last yeah. is you need yeah. all the stuff that's in this absolutely. book because running an organization that goes bust yes. or all the employees are miserable or I mean, yes. it, it, it doesn't you there, there is no hiding place from no. the harsh realities of the actual world absolutely I mean, you're a serious business person the fact that your business is helping yeah. families in need is is lovely but you've still got i mean you're a you report sort of to the ex-CEO of Macquarie. Yes, <laughs> and, you know, who, that's right. Who, who probably yes. isn't a complete pushover. And and you need to raise lots of money yes. and you've probably got, I don't know, yeah. have you got a 1,000 a volunteers, probably... Any one week, twenty of them are bent out of shape because yeah. because something hasn't happened. But yeah. would you mind
1: talking about the the business challenges? Good, them? yeah, no, thank you. It's a it's a it's a great question, and it's a, it is a real challenge. So, you know, actually, Steve had this line he stole from some someone else, I'm sure, which was, you know, there's no mission without a margin. That <laughs> wow. stayed with me. Wow, no mission without a margin because yeah. we were just starting all these social businesses, and margin is really important to kind of invest in what you're trying to do and. Create great working places and environments. So, look, I agree, and <clears throat> I was just talking to a group of business leaders. It was just last week, and uh, you know, I was kind of saying to them, "Yeah, you know, what you're doing is great. Running businesses provides shareholder returns. You're providing goods and services for the community. It's really important. Excellent, good. However, <laughs> it's much harder to do that, and." change the world at the same time, which is what we do in not-for-profits. We have to run good, sustainable organisations, retains people, uh, builds our reserves so we invest in the future, and we're also trying to improve the lives of people and change the society. That means working with government and other organisations. And, you know, for us at the Smith family, yes, we're doing it and supporting those 60,000 students through Learning for Life, but we're also trying to work with government to change the future of education because we know there's actually 1.2 million children experiencing income poverty in Australia today. And we're working with a small number of those young people, still a large cohort, of course. But the bigger change is actually to change policy to ensure that schools are getting great outcomes for young people uh, in our community now and into the future because of those big challenges. Just to illustrate that for you, Nigel. So if a young person uh, by the age of about 15 who might experience disadvantage in their life, on average, if you look at the NAPLAN data and what Grattan research will show, they can be four to five years behind their peers in literacy and numeracy. That is a big gap by the age of 15 to try and catch up. So clearly we've got to be doing something different with our education system. We've had a great education system in the past that served generations well. Teachers and schools are really doing hard work in difficult circumstances, but we've got to do something different going forward to get different outcomes for young people. And I was just at a sort of forum last night with a group of colleagues and were saying, why aren't we angry about this as a nation? Why aren't we actually mobilised around the fact that so many of our young people are falling behind and we're not adequately investing. So that's the that's the sort of work of a, of a not-for-profit, trying to run an organisation and change the world at the same time. It's tough, but, you know, it's exhilarating.
0: Now, And I imagine those five wonderful people who weren't called Smith but were called Smith, <laughs> if, if they were here in this room now, 101 years later, and I asked them the question, would you be pleased if the Smith family didn't have to exist? Yeah. They would say, absolutely.
1: yep. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good insight. It, um, I had all uh, a lot of my team together last week from our national office in Sydney, and I, and I said something, and I've said this at a few events with supporters saying, uh, particularly around our centenary, um, I would not lose any sleep if the Smith family wasn't here in 100 years, if we'd done our job. Um, and what matters is that not we sustain our organisation, but we sustain the impact and the difference that we're making. And if that means that ultimately we go to business, that'd be great. That's Wouldn't we fantastic. celebrate that? Yeah. Uh, but that's the Im- that's the important thing, because it's very easy, as you know, in an organisation, you get caught up with the institution and keeping the wheels running, not kind of asking those bigger questions around what, what, what difference are we actually making? It would be fantastic if the Smith Army
0: didn't would. exist. I mean, it's it going to be a few years, but yeah, you go, because the point is to, yeah. you know, so vulnerable families... You know, haven't got educational challenges. Yep. Wonderful. One quote from the book. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and I actually, I'm being harsh on it. I mean, I, I, I don't like the category because I think it's sort of rehashing, you know, flashes of the bleeding obvious. But, uh, right. but it was actually quite interesting about the balcony view yes. and diagnosis yeah. then action. Um, but but one of the uh, phrases that I've, I've written in my copious notes here is adaptive leadership, which was the title of the book. Uh, Always involves helping people deal with loss.
1: Mm. Would you mind talking to that? Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? Any good change uh, requires tough decisions and trade-offs. And invariably there are winners and there are losers. And so a lot of the thinking in adaptive leadership is how do you bring people along uh, in order to achieve that change, because you know the losses might be around, there could be resources, or it could be just ways of thinking that people have been previously invested in. So uh, a lot of what they talk about there is kind of is pacing the change. How do you? have the right conversation so you're turning up the heat and, and kind of going, you know, full frontal into those difficult conversations. and are not doing it too, make, making it too hot, too hard so you blow people up, but bringing people along. So, I think that's that's the essence I think of the challenge on big kind of social challenges, but also in organizations as well. Where you've you've got to leave things behind in order to do new things, you know. We we const- one of the things I'm really proud of at the Smith family is that I had that a hundred years, but that a hundred years of constantly doing new things and changing. And one of the things that we've been leaning into a lot is is digital inclusion. You know, we want all of our young people to have a connected laptop. Um, It seems bleedingly obvious, but 15% of the families that we're working with don't and probably about 15% of the students don't have a laptop. Now, you think about the educational impact for them. It's enormous. That's a big new thing. So what what do we need to leave behind to take on this big new thing? What have we got to do differently? So it's those sorts of things, I think, that are really the art of leadership uh, in helping people work through those things together.
0: He he had a great analogy in the book uh, of vegetable soup. Uh, yeah. I really liked it it speaks to what your point you've just made where where yeah. about not too hot not too cold you yeah. go if if you if you nuclear blast it and keep it on the stove for an yes. hour it's just mush yeah. Yeah. if you don't heat it enough then the yeah. potatoes and the carrots haven't you, know, you need to get yes. it
1: just right it's it's yeah, it's a good analogy and I think the other thing that's inherent in that is that he talks about is that our human nature always drives us to comfort <laughs> over yes. discomfort. So invariably the role of leaders is, is really about turning up the heat in a productive way at the right time so we lean into those right things because ultimately we'll avoid that at all costs because we don't like pain as human beings. So I think that's that's, again, one of those kind of challenges.
0: Now your third choice is the title track from the ninth album of the Indigo Girls, All That We Let In.
1: We've lost friends and loved ones much too young With so much promise
0: and work left undone When all that guards us is a single centre line And the brutal
1: crossing over when it's time 2004 my wife Kath and I uh, were due to have our second child Um, so eldest daughter Jemima and uh, unfortunately tragically uh, Hugh died seven uh, hours after being born so really terrible experience he had pulmonary hypertension which means that his lungs didn't make the transition from uh, being in the womb to breathing breathing independently so that was a just a horrific, horrific experience, uh, and in fact, it would have been Hugh's nineteenth birthday on Sunday. Just mm-hmm. gone, so we we were right. together at his grave, uh, reflecting on on you know our loss and and what that means. So, you know, these experiences shape you in ways you don't fully understand, and it was a, really had a profound impact uh, on Kath and I, particularly on Kath. who obviously carried Hugh all that time. So, I think what I guess what that meant. For me, was and uh, I mean one we that song we played at uh, at Hugh's funeral, I think for me it had this kind of impact. In just it's obvious, but profound for me was around the just the preciousness of life, and how and how important the time that we have is um, in our lives. And reflected on that a lot. And I think through losing Hugh, um, I've just become. I hope I haven't gone over the top, but just really real intentional about time and how I use it. You know, I want to use time in thing for things that matter, but also for things that support people that matter to me uh, at the same time. So I become quite disciplined around that. And, you know, I think about that stoic uh, philosophy of, you know, the memento mori. Um, uh, in other words, you know, they talked about every night, the practice of thinking that you might not wake up, so what do you need to do tomorrow? What do you need to do differently? And so that that kind of has been really, I guess, ingrained in me the the dis- discipline of how we use time, um, and focusing on the right things, and and equally with that being just really purposeful uh, about about life and and all those things. So that 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 I guess is the big one of the big impacts of my life in in losing Hugh in that oh,
0: way. It's such a sad story, mate. And if you don't. Mind me asking? Did Did you know during the pregnancy that it was no, trouble? Oh, no, my complete. Word. Oh my, complete, word.
1: complete shock. So, so you went from joy. Yeah, to oh my, you're making in, me well up. It was awful in a mo- in a matter of moments. um Very quickly, became aware that something was wrong. And you know, I can still, you know, uh, nurses and doctors were, you know, wonderful. They were so good to us and helping us kind of process that in the moment and and afterwards. Um, this is awful <clears throat> and I still remember you know uh, at the kind of the final the last few hours we had Hugh I had <coughs> while the nurses were looking after Kath I held him and I took him outside and just was kind of outside uh sitting with him and uh, the breeze kind of blowing him just blowing his hair around and like and it was just you know you just those kind of moments that that sit with you so yeah really really kind of awful really awful experience.
0: Such a credit that you've managed to to take something positive out of it in terms of in being yeah. intentional rather than, I can imagine, disappearing
1: down the bottom of a glass or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. You've had kids since? Yeah, so, yeah, yes, our our, our daughter Bridie uh, is just finishing her HSC uh, this year, actually, so we, we had another child, which was wonderful, so... So yeah, family's really important. Obviously, when you lose a child, those relationships matter um, enormously uh, to you. And so we're really grateful to have to have our girls, particularly uh, in losing Hugh. But he's with us, and we uh, we certainly remember him.
0: One of the one of the lines in the song uh, basically is about life happens, and we need yeah. every part of it to shape us. And it's uh, yeah. I can imagine if I had your story, I'd want to punch someone who said that. But it's um. Mm-hmm. It is sort of true. I mean, it is just like you are saying about the we don't choose where we're born. Mm. You know, we could have been born mm. in, you know, war-torn Syria or somewhere. Yeah. And, yeah, so, yeah, I, mate, that's just such a yeah. sad story.
1: And it's – look, I've obviously had lots of friends and family who've been through, as we all have, all these enormous challenges. And it's it's a real fine line between – looking for too much meaning in suffering and those awful things uh but also being reflective and responsive and and acknowledging that it does shape you and kind of thinking that through so it's try to get that balance and not be too fatalistic kind of maintain that sense of optimism and hope and that often people who go through those crushing experiences are very hard uh to do that and you know and just credit to Kath Kath's a remarkable person um in terms of you know she's had significant health challenges as well but remains this incredibly, and with losing Hugh too, still remains this enormously optimistic and hopeful and positive person and invariably shaped in part by that.
0: Your fourth choice yeah. is where we are sitting. It is.
1: Woolloomooloo. It is. Tell us your story about Woolloomooloo. Woolloomooloo, yeah, what an amazing place, an incredible kind of history and a pretty vibrant community. And for those who don't know, Willamaloo is a suburb between the CBD of Sydney and King's Cross. You know, quite a gentrified place, but also public housing estate. There's a community of rough sleepers. Matthew Talbot Hostels, just over the road from where we are, who supports lots of um, homeless people, does, a, does great work. So, Woolloomooloo, back in the mid-90s, was where I had my first role, uh, coming out of college. So, uh, first role was working with rough sleepers in the community, people who experienced, you know, drug and alcohol addictions up around the cross as uh, an outreach worker. And for someone just coming out of college, it was enormously kind of confronting. It was at the time when it was a, a heroin epidemic at that period, so... Confronting that was working with people who are rough sleepers, but also really difficult uh, addictions with heroin. They're literally, people dying the sleep. I can still remember names and images of people that we lost in that time. So, I, it's significant at that point because it, I was seriously thinking: Is this the work I want to do? Is this what it's like? Because it's it's so difficult um, and quite despairing. And and asking the question: Can you actually make a difference? Can you create change? So I moved away from that work and was doing other work for a while. But over the course of my working life, I've been coming back to Woolloomooloo in different incarnations, doing different things. And each time it's been stories of hope, which has been kind of wonderful to have that that circle of life, if, if you like. So the next time I came back to Woolloomooloo, very different circumstance. I was in philanthropy, uh, working with a Swiss bank. And we came down with one of those big oversized cheques, to give to the community of Willamaloo, terribly cheesy things. Um, Try not to do big (laughs) oversized checks if we can, but still, it was great to be doing that. However, um, we had this community event, the funds were being handed over, a lot of people from the community came together, and I looked around and I realised that a lot of people there were people that I'd worked with 10 years prior, and they were still homeless on Mm. the streets. And I was thinking, all these organisations doing all this great work, yet people are still on the streets. How you know? How can that be? Despite all our efforts. And so anyway, we, with a group of people, including one of the Swiss bankers, came together and said, you know, "What what would it look like if we found ninety homes for ninety lives?" At that point, we knew there were ninety rough sleepers in Willamaloo. The upshot of that was, um, with business leaders and government leaders and community leaders, we. We found those 90 homes and funding from the government to get people off the streets into secure housing with wraparound supports and exactly what they need. And surprise, surprise, even with people with mental health issues and all sorts of challenges and addictions, get them a house, get them support. They become citizens, people who are just... living an average life and getting on with things so it was a wonderful kind of experience and from there a lot of programs have ensued that really focused on what's called um, housing first getting people off the streets and getting the supports that they need so that was kind of one um, time I came back to Willamalu uh, which was wonderful the other one was I mentioned the heroin epidemic at the time in another role I came back uh, and had uh, it was Responsibility for Looking After Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, Inks Kings Cross. That's a program that started uh, in the early 2000s. Premier Bob Carr ran a drug summit, basically creating a space for people to safely inject. Under the premise that problematic drug addiction is a health problem, it's not a problem to be criminalised. Um, And we want to keep people alive in order order to provide them with supports because if they're injecting in unsafe ways or by themselves and using drugs in those ways, then that creates enormous risk to them. Uh, And that program, remarkably now, has been running for over 20 years. It's now being run in other parts of the world and and down in Melbourne. And in King's Cross, there's been 10,000 overdoses in that centre and not one death. Right. Right. For me, I find that enormously hopeful. I think of all the lives saved by a great program that's focusing on the health issues and not punitive measures and criminalising a problem. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so Woolloomooloo has been a place of great experiences for me. Difficult at the same time in terms of what you see, in terms of the challenges that people experience. The problems aren't all solved in Woolloomooloo, of course, but, you know, I just, again, I've said it before, but with the, the right programs, the right supports at the right time with the right people, can do great things for people when they need it. If I flipped the coin,
0: you've talked a wonderful story about James and the wonderful 90-bed story. Would you mind talking to an initiative or a project you were involved in that with the benefit of hindsight 10 years later or whatever you go well-intentioned but oh my god what the hell were we thinking it it had bugger all effect or or indeed it made things worse
1: Mm, probably one of the programs that comes to mind is you know when i was at workbenchers and this was mixed i'd say this was mixed kind of success uh again we were focused on trying to bridge the digital divide and we were really concerned about remote indigenous communities um lots of challenges uh, for those communities great strengths as well great cultural strengths wonderful deep history and you know lots of great cultural leadership as well but what we were trying to do was create effectively internet cafes in those uh, in those communities because we were worried about the young people falling behind with their learning and being isolated and removed so we created a few white elephants if that's the right description may not be the right metaphor uh, because we really just didn't do the work of engaging the community but also we didn't address the tyranny of distance because, what do you know, computers break down um, and there weren't the skills in those communities to repair the hardware and we didn't have the kind of the pipeline of support and supply of uh, replacements and the like. So that's one of the big kind of learnings and over time we we looked at doing that differently and so shifted from kind of the classic go in and put the hardware in place, you know, uh, if you build it, they will come sort of philosophy to focusing on building leadership and... Uh, you know building capability and particularly providing those supports so that the leaders themselves uh, could do that work and that we were just enabling them and providing the resources that they needed and particularly around some of the technical training and the like so again not rocket science uh, but a shift in approach I think was a big lesson and sad thing is I still you know people still make those same mistakes I think you know going in and all guns have we got a solution for you, community? Mm. Uh, instead, listening and particularly listening to the leaders and supporting them with what they need and, and helping them take the leadership role for their own community.
0: I, it's just wonderfully honest and instructive and helpful, you telling that story. It shouldn't stop people being well-intentioned. No, and and no. because you make a mistake doesn't mean no. you should stop working in the field. I remember no. ages ago, oh, God, 90s, working in... Uh, anti-drugs, and we did a set of posters uh, you know, to try and stop people doing heroin. and, right. and the model that we used, who uh, you know we made look horrible and wasted right. and whatever, was stuck up on posters. You, you know it, it, she became it was like yeah. the, the, the phrase heroin chic, Kate Moss right. and all that stuff. Right. Is the poster, the image that we used to put young people off from doing heroin mm. was attracting
1: them. Mm. yeah it just a mind meltingly how on earth could you want to look like that she's clearly skeletal and blah
0: blah blah but it yeah you've just got to look at outcomes yeah you you go well so everyone involved in that no one wanted to do that to have that outcome but but rather than be defensive about it you go yeah
1: that that
0: was idiotically non-effective so rip it up
1: and learn and it's it's you're right, you know. Good intentions aren't enough. I think is the is the point, isn't it? I mean, they're great, but it's a combination of focusing on outcomes, theory, thinking about unintended consequences. I mean, I think that's one of the great lessons: is you know, think about the downsides, what could go wrong, uh, and what you need to do about it. But again, fundamentally, it's just about listening. I think we're getting better at doing that and taking seriously uh, people's voices and empowering them to guide and direct us. There's a big focus. Uh, with a lot of peer organisations that I work with about prioritising lived experience. So people that have those experiences, how do we listen to them? How do they have roles of leadership? So, you know, um, in a couple of weeks, this might be a bit of a spoiler, but we've got our annual general meeting at the Smith family and we'll be inviting onto our board one of our former students. Wonderful. So he will bring to the table all his experiences uh, of experiencing poverty as a young man, the challenges with his education, all that insight will be front and centre in the decisions that we make. And a lot of organisations are thinking about that, and I think that's a great thing to have those insights. I think it says something about what you prioritise and what matters when you think in those ways. Wonderful. Your fifth and last
0: choice yeah. on Five My Life is your, he you says your first birth certificate. How many have you
1: got, mate? <laughs> That's right. Many false identities. No, yeah. I have two. So backstory is um, my birth mother, Kay, uh, conceived me in uh, Perth, Western Australia, and came over to Sydney to have me at Crown Street Women's Hospital and put me up for adoption. So... Kay, uh, at the time, as she tells me, had a, just kind of, things were a bit challenging in the family at the time, brother had just come back to the Vietnam War, things were disrupted, so, and it was a different era. So without telling the family, flew all the way across, uh, had me, told the family at some point later, and then uh, I was born three weeks later, I then met my adoptive parents, Richard and Louise. So two, two birth certificates, Second one, Douglas David Taylor. Uh, first one, Michael James Lidlow. So these kind of two almost against the sliding doors things, Yeah. Uh, two kind of identities, if you like. And I remember, you know, in my late 20s, embarking on that journey of understanding uh, where, th- where I came from, in a sense, all those uh, from all those years ago, I, I left it to the late 20s. I wanted to be kind of fairly settled uh, as a person. It's, you know, adoptive experiences can be pretty challenging for a lot of people. It's not a uh, common practice these days as it was back in the 70s because I think we prioritise blood connection and connection to family um, and it's very difficult I think for those who have to make very difficult choices in child protection I don't envy their roles and they're trading off the connection with sometimes risk of harm and abuse very very difficult choices that wasn't my situation at all but um, uh, yeah so that's my kind of uh, backstory as to how life has unfolded to me so I feel honestly Nigel it's been a, a good experience for me i feel like i've got two wonderful families my adoptive family are really important to me they've shaped me and influenced me in you know really significant ways and reconnected with kay and my birth father ross and as a whole in fact in a few weeks i'm going over for my sister's wedding uh in perth uh from, you know, with marita and seamus and so it's been a, a really positive uh experience for me
0: when did you get to in touch with kay
1: yeah late 20s so to complete that story so it's a really interesting process at the time docs at the time in new south wales very cautious about how to make those connections uh, because you can imagine quite confronting and particularly for the birth parents to have somebody out of the blue so they have what's called a reunion register so where either party puts their name down uh, in advance to say i'd be open to meeting uh the other person and if there's a match made, they'll then connect you up and provide the de- your details. So we corresponded first with Kay. We were writing for a while. Similarly with Ross, we were writing. Then a few phone calls, and then a little later, we said, "Why don't we come over?" So, still remember going over with Kath. Um, we hadn't had hadn't had any of our girls at the time, or Hugh, and um, flew over and. Um, uh, meeting her for the first time, uh, actually remember she got the times wrong and so it was a total surprise <laughs> <laughs> us being there. We were come, supposed to be coming out daily, which was probably good for her to not be so anxious. So, yeah, it's been a really positive experience and I think I'm sure psychologists will have a, there's a lot of theory around the impact on uh, children who are adopted. Uh, and for me, I think it's one just, underscored how important family is. so you know Kath's the most significant relationship in my life wonderful person daughters are incredibly important for me. they're the, probably the greatest mentors for me uh, in my life it's very special Any time that they're together is you know, wonderfully rich and valuable for me. I think the other thing too what I've taken from that is the importance of I don't know how to describe it but open families. So blood connections are important but they're not everything. It's important to have kind of open families that welcome other people as well. And, you know, we've tried to do that in our family. And just a kind of an example of that, Kath, probably about 10, 12 years ago, when there was a big number of people coming from Sri Lanka, Uh, as refugees connected up with a Sri Lankan man Kumar and his daughter Vinnie out here by themselves and so we were trying to think about how can we support them and getting this you know what they need to be connected into the community and we started building relationships and supporting them Um, anyway long story short tragically uh, Kumar took his life isolated you can imagine by himself with his daughter struggling to kind of work out how things operate in Australia unemployed we tried to make connections for him but you know did his best but it was just a really difficult time for him so Vinnie was by herself so our family and a few others kind of connected with her and got her what she needed connecting with school place to live helped her then move on to further studies and do other things and um, you know she's just had her first child uh, with her partner which is exciting uh, trained preschool teacher gone on to study aged care and just got permanent residency two days ago, which was, you know, so, so wonderful. So, yeah, wonderful to have those kind of stories, again, of hope. Um, but I guess what I take from that is, uh, you know, obviously in my professional life, we can do a lot in providing services and support, but often it's what communities can do. Families just connecting with families, um, people connecting with uh, friends by organising groups to ride together. You know, it's just communities looking after each other is as important as all that we do in government in providing services uh, as well.
0: I have. I've just adored this conversation. I, I, I've been writing furiously whilst you have been speaking. And there are so many lessons from the one you've just said about the importance of family to being aware of unintended consequences. I love the 90 bed story. If, yeah. if I Google that, will that come up? You will. I encourage everyone else to do the same thing. That was just. I love initiatives that actually work. The, the story so moving about you being intentional about time because i mean how can you not be having gone through that experience i love the there's no mission without a margin (laughs) i I, I wish i'd heard that earlier because that 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 really neatly sums up lots of the issues i have with certain institutions where i think you're fantastic but you ain't going to be here in two years time blah 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 Uh, and i suppose my overall Take out, I mean, apart from it, you're a lovely rooster and it's been gorgeous meeting you, mate. It is the message of hope that yeah. you can change, just, just like your film set you on a certain path at the age of nine or whatever, yeah. you can change a life forever. Yeah. That the, the most awful circumstance, there could be somebody on the streets, you know, a smack addict, whatever, yeah. the right intervention at the right time yeah. can change that life that can then knock on effect, yeah. change 120 lives yeah, because exactly. of. Uh, yeah, so just. Mate, more power to your elbow. It's Thank just, you. You're, Thanks, you're, you're a bloody legend. Um, but you have one more choice. Okay. Which is the sixth choice on Five My Life. Who would you like to hear take the challenge next and why?
1: Great. Thank you. So, well, um, as I mentioned before, I'm uh, on the board of Wayside Chapel um, mm-hmm. and uh, love their work, You know, their kind of mission of there being no us and them, seeing the importance of communities coming together as one people in all their great, wonderful diversity and richness. So I would suggest that you get John Owen, the pastor and CEO of Wayside Chapel. John has an incredible story. You know, worked internationally, worked out in Mount Drill at Western Sydney for a number of years. Much of his work today is, uh, you know, working on the streets of King's Cross. Every week he sends out... Uh, an email called the inner circle uh, which just tells stories of his conversations that he's having with people he doesn't romanticize poverty or the life challenges but just takes the insights and it's it just pumps your tires up every week when you read his email so i, I think do yourself a favor and get john owen
0: well that's your challenge mate because okay. I, I will be emailing you this I'll, afternoon we'll so can
1: it. you can you uh, introduce Absolutely, me Absolutely, of course
0: uh doug thank you so thank much you. for sharing your choices on find my life thank you thank you for listening to this episode If you follow five of my life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, 40 and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show,
1: please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.